Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back. Is everyone doing all right? Yes, one yes. Okay, we're doing good. Um, first, before I get started, does anyone have a story about being able to use something from last week? Um, something they learned last week that uh, turned out to be helpful in conversations or just in your own personal uh, study of the Bible? If not, no worries. Just curious. Well, great. There was a whole lot of information last week, a whole, whole lot, and I know it's tough to retain. I, I, uh, we've been having some trouble with the audio from last week, getting that online, so we're still working towards that. But you should have the PDF. If you had, a, if you had trouble um, with the PDF that I emailed out to everyone on the list or you didn't receive it, um, you can come to the desk back there and just write down your email address, and I'll try to resend it and try to fix that as best as we can. Um, but just to start off this week, um, we'll do a quick review of last week. I'm just going to show you the last slide we had last week. Um, and what we went over is the trustworthiness of the Bible, how we got it, um, can we rely on it, um, and the big one is the Bible reliable, five Ps, profession, production, preservation, prophecy, and personal testimony. Not any one of these is a uh, sledgehammer argument, so to speak, that you just come down and it hammers and proves that the Bible is trustworthy, but together they make a very compelling argument. Uh, we believe the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. Um, so this is what we believe about the Bible, that it doesn't lie, it doesn't deceive, it tells the truth, um, that it is our final authority on every matter to which it's, it speaks, and it is inspired, it is the Word of God. And the New Testament, um, there are a lot of people that are arguing about um, if the New Testament can be trusted. Well, it is apostolic, that means it came from the apostles, it's inspired, it's attested, which means it's historically, we can prove that what we have is, very, uh, is what was written originally, and it was accepted early. It's not something that people a couple hundred years later said, well, we'll say that this is what they wrote. Um, but this week, we're really going to get kind of into the so what. We talked a lot about theology, um, and theology is great, and knowing these things are great, but if we can't use them um, on an everyday basis, they're just kind of filling up space in our head. Um, and I don't want to make us smarter sinners as much as I would love to see us become more effective saints, if that makes sense. Um, now, a lot of you guys have your book. Um, if you went through it, was it helpful? Did it kind of help solidify some of the things we talked through? Went really slow through some of the scriptures we walked over. If you weren't able to go through it, we just did Behaving One, the first third of that first chapter. Um, just And it kind of slowly went over what we talked about very briefly to help really... Um, simplify and solidify what we learned. Um, if you didn't, weren't able to go through it, that's great, but it is something that could be good to go back to um, to really help work through how do you use this and uh, solidify it in your mind. One question that we had last week that we didn't talk about that I want to start with here um, is translations. There are, golly, it seems like hundreds of translations of the Bible. There's, I mean, why on earth do we have so many? There's the NIV, the NLT, NET, NRSV, um, RSV, the King James, the New King James. That I mean, there are, it seems, it's overwhelming how many translations of the Bible there are. Um, and this doesn't mean that the Bible's not trustworthy, and all of these translations aren't completely different things. Um, I think a lot of times we say, we think, okay, I have to pick out a translation. Well, I don't know which one I'm supposed to read because they're all different, right? Well, they're, they're not totally different. Um, I have an exercise that we're going to do as tables. Um, if there's only a couple of you at your table, you may want to get with um, another group to have more. Um, uh, but this will kind of help us see, hey, what's the difference in some of the translations? And then I'll talk about three specific translations that I like 
and tell you how we got them and why I, I like them particularly. Um, but the Bible was written, just, just for some backgrounds, written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Um, and those are... We, English has some connection to Greek, but really doesn't have any connection to Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, those are what are called Semitic languages. And so translating to English from them can be pretty difficult. Um, sometimes there's not an exact word that translates. We don't have necessarily all the words that they had in their language. Um, and I mean, th- this goes on today. I, there, someone told me about a Japanese word. Uh, I forgot what it meant. It's a phrase that, that means um, eating a meal sideways. And it and it refers to that particular awkwardness when speaking a foreign language that you don't really know. And so if it was written a letter, hey, this is how I feel, I feel like I'm eating a meal sideways, you wouldn't translate that directly because it, you wouldn't really understand it. You'd have to kind of work with it and massage it a little bit to say, okay, this means this. Well, sometimes the original languages are like that. Um, we're going to work through Galatians 6.9. Now, this is what a translator would see when they look at Galatians 6, 9. That, that's Greek. Um, and I, I did the translation work. I'm not expecting you all to work through what all the words mean and all the syntax. But in a very word-for-word basis, this is what the translation comes out to. In doing excellent things, let us not lose spirit, for after a measure of time, one's own reaping will occur if we do not become weary. That's kind of hard to understand what that means. But all the translation's been done. So what I want you to do at your table is come together and kind of massage this, work this a little bit to figure out, okay, how, if you were translating this, if you were writing this down, what's an easier way to say this that makes sense to people now in English? Like it, if you were going to make this simpler, how would you guys take this phrase and really um, make it clear? So take about five or six minutes and get together and say, okay, how are we going to make this more clear? Don't, don't, yeah, don't look in your Bibles. I'll show it to you afterwards. Don't look in your Bibles. Because then you'll just translate to what has already been translated to. Um, so... Work, work with it a little bit. It'll probably be easier if you take, if you split it up into little chunks, like that first little from the beginning to the comma, or first line, then the second line. All right, does anyone have something that they feel comfortable with sharing or a part? Of a verse, this is this is tricky work. This is this is tricky to take a foreign language and really work it into a, something that we can read and understand, and that's a lot simpler. And it, it it takes some struggle, and you probably realize that you came up with more questions than you did answers. On well, how do, well how do I make doing excellent things, and what is this saying? Well, here's. Um, Here's what the NASB says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's almost what you had. What, what did y'all have? We have, um, don't grow weary when doing good things, don't lose faith after a season of time, good things occur if you don't give up. All right. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Really struggling through it. Um, now, they went from all of this. To, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The ESV would say, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And the NIV will say, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Now, these translations aren't saying anything different, they're just saying it in a little bit of a different way. And that's because there's a couple different philosophies on how to translate. The NASB would say you need to translate word for word, and every word that's in Greek that can be 
translated into English, you need to put that in there. And that comes out a little bit more wooden. It's a little harder to read for like a Bible study, but it is a word-for-word translation. It's a uh, literal translation. The New American Standard Bible, NASB. Um, so if, if I'm studying Greek or if I'm studying something for seminary, I'll probably read out of the NASB because it's a word-for-word translation. The ESV, um, they move towards what a little bit more paraphrasing. Okay, this is what the Greek is saying. This is what it's trying to say, what the emphasis is. And so we're going to not necessarily do every word. We're going to try to paraphrase the Greek so you really get the meaning of each phrase, each clause. But their ESV is going to still hold on to some of the word for word. They're kind of in the middle. And then in the NIV is your paraphrastic translation. It's a lot easier to read. Paraphrases um, the meaning of the text. Uh, an even updated version, the New Living Translation, We'll probably paraphrase even a little bit more. Um, but they're paraphrasing the original language. A Bible like the message paraphrases the English. And so that's not, that's not a uh, translation of the Bible. It's a translation of a translation. So you're going from a language, then paraphrasing that. Um, the NASB is all translated from Greek, Greek Old Testament, Greek New Testament. ESV is from... Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament, if you're interested in um, why those are, that's great. But I, I like all three of those translations. Um, yes? What about the, um, like the, kind of the Right. There were a couple of translations uh, or a couple of verses that um, some... Greek and Hebrew scholars said, well, this really isn't getting at what the text is saying. They were probably a little bit too liberal in how they translated it. So the updated, the newer NIV is the one that I would grab um, if you're going for the NIV. Um, everyone that I've talked to that is knows a lot more about languages, original languages than I do say that they really like the updated NIV. Um, uh, my personal Bible that I have up here that I read uh, for quiet times and whatnot is an NIV. It's an, uh, the newer NIV. Um, I don't know all of the ins and outs of the controversy, but from the people I've talked to, um, the 84, it's either 84 or 86. Um, 84, yeah. Um, it, it's, don't go home and if you have an 84, throw it in the trash can. Um, but be willing to look at what some of the parallel translations say, okay, this is how the NIV understands this, this is how the ESV understands this, because sometimes in Greek and Hebrew, the words are deeper than, than we have them in English. English doesn't really do them justice. My favorite um, example of this, I forgot to put it up on the slide, uh, but I'll read it. It's Ephesians 3.10. His intent, or God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So God's intent is that the manifold wisdom of God be made known through Christ. Now, manifold is not a word we use every day. Like, I don't call things manifold. And so when I read that, I was just thinking to myself, what on earth does that mean? I googled manifold, and a picture of the Epcot ball popped up. Manifold means an object with many sides on it. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. Um, the wisdom of God has many sides. I wonder what the Greek says. And I went and I looked at the Greek, and the Greek word is an adjective that describes a vibrant painting of many colors. Just one word, and it says, hey, this is a painting that has many bright and beautiful colors on it. It is a vibrant painting. And so when you look at the verse that says the wisdom of God, which is like a bright and beautiful painting full of many colors, God's intent is that that bright and beautiful wisdom be shown through the church, through his people, just takes on a whole deeper meaning. You're just like, whoa, all right. I, I get excited about that much more than a big multi-sided museum. Um, 
But sometimes the Greek and the Hebrew can be a lot deeper than English can even get across. Um, and I know that probably no one in here is particularly excited about studying Greek or Hebrew for years just to get um, a deeper insight on some of the verses. There's a website out there, net.bible.org. It's an online Bible study resource that's for free. And you can sign up for it and put your own notes on it if you want. Um, But there's a tab on there for languages. And so there's two windows. One will have the English, and then if you hit original language, the Greek will come up. And you just hover your mouse over it, and it'll say, okay, this word is where this word comes from. And it'll highlight the English word that corresponds to it. And if you click on it, it'll pull up Strong's Concordance, which is just um, a definition of the original word. And it'll say, okay, here's all the places it's used in the Bible. Here's what it means. And it really helps you get a deeper understanding of Scripture. Um, But as far as translations go, um, I I usually recommend those three. Um, I know people use a lot of other translations, and that's fine. Uh, But kind of figure find out more about them. Don't just pick one up arbitrarily. The opening pages will, and the preface, it's kind of weird that a Bible would have a preface written in it, but it'll say kind of how, what decisions did we make and how did we translate this, which can be helpful. Um, we're going to talk about studying the Bible today. That's going to be the most of our time. Um, uh, if the Word of God is inerrant, that means it will not deceive us. And it's infallible, which means it's our final authority, and it's inspired, then shouldn't we know it? Shouldn't we hold it in our hearts, right? The Holy Spirit is our guide. He teaches and enlightens us to Scripture. Jeremiah 33, which talks about the new covenant. God says he's going to write the law of this new covenant on the hearts of his people. There's a Knowing the Word of God is a huge, huge huge application point to everything we talked about last week. The Bible is all these wonderful things. Why wouldn't we know it? Uh, A professor down at DTS, Howard Hendricks, is a monument in Bible study methods. He he is um, probably any influential pastor that you can think of today at some point ran into this guy and learned how to study their Bible from him. Um, He said, dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. In fact, you're either in the Word of God and the Word is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, or you're in a world, you're in the world and the world is squeezing you into its mold. There's no real middle ground. I mean, every single one of us probably has a Bible or two or three or four at home, but a lot of them collect dust. And we have them, but we don't crack them open too often. Or we read them, um, but usually if we have a problem, then we'll go to the Bible and it'll help us and then we can move on. And maybe when we look in it, you go to your concordance in the back. Well, I want to know about marriage. And so you look up marriage. Okay, these are the verses. You read one verse and you close it and you don't really look at its context or know why that verse is there. Um, So either you're in the Word, and the Word is conforming you, or the world is conforming you and informing um, what you believe on issues like marriage or anything else. Another quote from him. um, And tonight I'm really going to direct more study than I am going to teach. We're going to do a lot more stuff at the tables. And so I'm going to give you passages, and we're going to really work through them. And I'm going to teach a particular method of Bible study. Um, and if it doesn't really connect with you, that's fine. I have these Join the Journey pamphlets out in the lobby, and uh, on the inside, there is a six-step method that's adapted from this, but this is easy just to sit down with and say, hey, am I studying, how am I studying my word? And then the book will have a four-step method. And they're all kind of saying the same thing. They're just putting it in different ways, so figure out which one works best. They all kind of align to the same one. Um, but I'm really going to direct more study than I am going to teach. Uh, and this quote will really help with why. Knowledge that is self-discovered is stored in the deepest part of the mind and remains the longest in memory. There is no jewel more precious than that which you have mined yourself. If you are a teacher um, or think about the most important things you've learned 
over your life, they're probably things that you've learned yourself. Or if you're a teacher, you want students to discover for themselves. So you'll guide them to discovery rather than just telling them all the points. Because when you learn something for yourself, when you discover some sort of jewel, it just sticks in your mind, much more than memorizing any sort of data ever could. So how do we study the Word of God? Well, first of all, let's do this. Why? What are some reasons to not study the Bible? What are some reasons you've heard or you've thought, well, I don't really know if I need to study it. I mean, I'll read it. I don't know if I need to study it. What are some, maybe not from you, but oppositions you've heard from people that we don't need to really be in the Bible a lot? Not, yeah, it takes too much time. I don't have enough time. It's not relevant. It's written to a different people. It's not really relevant. What's in it's true, but I don't need to spend much time in it. And if I do spend a lot of time in it, well, where's that time going to come from anyhow? Yeah. We can all probably think of some reason why day-to-day we're not getting in the Word. I can't. I, I haven't gotten enough sleep. There's not enough time. Um, I, I just don't know what it means. I don't have enough... I'm, I don't have a... We're picking up something. <laughs> um, uh, there, I don't know enough. I mean, my goodness, I'd probably have to have a seminary degree to figure this out. Um, but none of those are true. You can all learn to fish, so to speak, from Scripture. Now, you may have to consult some outside sources, but you can each get into the Bible on your own and learn a whole lot on your own without any outside help. Another great Howard Hendricks uh, comment on commentaries, I think a lot of times we buy commentaries so we can read the Bible, or we buy Bible studies so we can read the Bible. Um, He said, it's amazing how much the Bible sheds light on commentaries, not the other way around. A lot of times we think, I can't know it unless someone else tells me what it means. And so we kind of get to know the Bible secondhand rather than getting to know it for ourselves. We learn God, about God and who He is secondhand than learning um, one-on-one. It's easy. Three steps. Observation, interpretation, application. Observe, interpret, apply. And the steps are important. Because when you don't really go through all of the steps, then you'll come up with some really funny readings or funny translations or funny understandings of what the Bible is saying. Observe, interpret, apply. It's really easy. Boom, boom, boom. Now let's break down each one. Observe. Your first question when you open the Bible is what does it say? What are the words on the page? And you're kind of, this, is, this is detective mode. This is when you ask questions. This is when you go in and you look at it and you start examining it. You're going to gather the clues. What is my context? Context is king. That is your number one key to understanding a passage. First, understand the context. Is this, what is the literary context? Is this a poem? Is this a song? Poems use a lot of flowery language. And oftentimes we'll use metaphors, um, and they won't be literal. Um, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor right now. Uh, Someone was walking on air. You know, we might say that poetically when someone is feeling good or they're in love or something. It's like they're floating. Well, they're not actually floating. It's just an artistic way of describing that. Is this history? Is this a book that's telling you this happened and this happened and this happened? Because you're going to read history different than you read poetry. Cultural. Who are we talking to? This is, are we talking to first century Jews? Are we talking to Greeks? Are we talking to Romans right now? Who are we talking to? Because you would speak to them in different ways. If I'm speaking to a first century Jew, I'll reference the Old Testament a lot. I might talk about farming or... Uh, sacrifices or agricultural practices uh, that would be important to their everyday lives. If I'm talking to Romans, I I would talk in a different way. If I'm talking to Greeks, I'd probably refer a lot more philosophy. 
um, and theological. Um, you're going to ask, first question, once you figure out the context, hey, who are we talking about? Who are our main characters? Who's the author? Who's the recipient? If it's a story, who are we talking about? Who are these characters? What is going on? What are the events? Are there promises? Is this, is this a promise? Is this an um, example in front of me? What, 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 is, what is going on? Are there, what are the key words? So once you start really looking at a passage, you might realize that some words are being repeated over and over again. Why on earth is Paul repeating heart so many times when he's talking about the law? Oh, he must be putting emphasis on my heart. Uh, where? Where are we? That may matter in what we're talking about. If you're in Ephesus, well, there were a lot of temples there, so they reference temples or the gods of those temples. When is this happening historically? Is this the early days? Is this the kingdom period with David, Saul, and Solomon? Is this when they were in exile, the people of God were in exile? Is this after Christ? Is this during Christ's life? And why? This is the big one. Why? Why was this written? Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful or profitable for teaching, encouragement, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be fully equipped for all good deeds. All Scripture is useful. So why was this written? So let's, let's, do, so, let's do some observation. When I was in Howard Hendricks' class, he sat us down with this verse and said, I want you to come up with 25 observations. As a table, I want you to come up with 20. That seems like a lot. But to encourage you, um, when we came back with 25 observations, he looked at him and said, that's great, now do 25 more. And then we brought back our 50, and he said, that's great, now do 25 more. So we eat, each person in that class came up with 75, and he's compiled each unique one, and there's around 400-something uh, unique observations. So 20, as a table, this verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the farthest parts of the earth. So gather the context clues, who, what, where, when, why. Acts 1.8. On your market set, go. All right, we'll come back in. Is anyone a little bit frustrated right now? Kind of a little weary? I, I've been there. I've felt that. I've worked through this same verse and been frustrated and left class and just thought, I, my goodness, there's no way I can come up with a 26th observation. But this, this was really to show, I wasn't trying to make you, this wasn't just to make you frustrated or to make you struggle with this verse in particular, but just to show that the verses do go deep. There's a lot you can see that you probably wouldn't have realized unless you had sat down and thought about that verse. And this one in particular, Acts 1-8, you probably just glaze right over this. But who, who had the most? Who got the most out there? Who thinks they had the most? Shout out how many you had. Twelve. Awesome. Thirteen? Okay. Oh, sorry. Sixteen here? Yeah, they had a, they had a big table. Next, next time, get with more people. You'll be better off. Yeah. That's the lesson from that. But working through the context, okay, who's speaking? Jesus. Jesus. Who's he speaking to? His apostles. Right. What is, what is he doing right now? He's, Jesus is getting ready to leave. And so he's kind of telling them, hey, here's what you're going to do. Did any of you, what, what's the connection of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? Yeah. Yeah. And did you know that, or did you use a map? Map. map. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You've got you got gasps from that. People 
like you were cheating. But yeah, Jerusalem is the city. This is where the crucifixion resurrection happened. This is where the day of Pentecost will happen. Judea is the area around that, and Samaria is kind of the region. So it's showing this radiating, spreading effect of what the disciples are going to do. So Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses that spread out over, over the region and to the farthest parts of the earth. And this is exactly what you see happen in the whole book of Acts. This is kind of, this verse is the book of Acts in one verse, is Acts 1.8. Jesus leaves his apostles, the Holy Spirit comes, they, the church grows in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then the whole known world around the Mediterranean with Paul's missions. And if you're reading Acts, you'll see statements like this, the church did this. There's these little updates through Acts that you can separate the different areas of the book with that really start here. So a little verse that doesn't look like much, if you get into it, struggle with a little bit, try to figure out, okay, what is it saying? You realize, oh, this is the thesis of the whole book. This is the purpose. This is the why. And then as you read the rest of the book, you say, okay, here's how this is coming to fruition. What Jesus said is coming true. But you really have to slow down and look at it. It's not as much I'm going to sit down to re- today and read two chapters of Acts as much as I, I'll probably sit down today and read a chunk of one chapter and really get my mind around that one. And then when you start looking at the Bible at that, you think, wow, there is a lot to observe here and a lot to see. But it's not just observation. Observation's fine on its own, but now we're going to move to interpretation. Once you have the context, you know... Why what was said was said, you know who it was said to, at what time and where, and you have all your clues, you, start, you can interpret it, and interpretation is really just saying, what does it mean? This is what, what does it say, what does it mean? Now, this is, this is the difficult piece of this method, of understanding Scripture. This is the hard part that a lot of times people skip over. They say, okay, this was said, um, you, will be my, um, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and throughout the whole known world. Okay, well, the you is me. That's me. Um, so I'm going to go be a witness in Jerusalem. Is that what it's saying? Well, I, I don't think so. I don't think that was addressed to me, but if I was just looking at the verse and I observed it, and then immediately went to application and didn't look at the interpretation, you can get, you can get off base. And the, the problem there is there's kind of two audiences in the Bible. There's the original audience, so who the book was originally written to. Philippians was originally written to the Philippians. Romans originally written to the Romans. Acts, did any of you look at the beginning of Acts and see who Acts was written to? Theophilus. Acts was written to Theophilus to give an account of the church. That was the original audience. And then over time, we come to the modern audience, which is us now. And the interpretation piece takes that verse and says, okay, what is the truth in this verse that matters to me now? How has God spoken then And how is he speaking now in his word? So what does it mean? You can cross-reference is a great way to do this. If you're looking at a verse and you say, this is tough. I, I, I don't know what this means. First step, before you go to outside resources, let the Bible explain itself. Give it the opportunity to expand on itself. If you have a study Bible... There's those little columns on the inside with lots of little letters and Bible references, and you may not ever use those, but cross-referencing can be an amazing way to really figure out what's going on in passages. That's something that took my Bible study to the next level, is just using those verses in my study Bible and saying, I don't get this. 
Because someone has done a lot of work to say, well, here's what they're talking about. Here's where else in the Bible they talk about it. So you can quickly flip someplace else and say, oh, of course. Okay, well, that explains it more. Now I know what we're talking about. So let the Bible explain itself in interpretation first. Then consult outside sources. If you need to look at um, a concordance or, or a, uh, excuse me, a commentary or if there's someone who's written kind of a historical commentary and saying, hey, this is what's going on at the time. Um, you don't have to know, you don't have to be an expert on uh, Israel, Israeli history and culture to read the Bible. Some people have done all the hard work for you and say, hey, here's the pieces of culture that you have to know that really help you understand this. Like, what, is a, what does a sickle have to do with anything here? What, what is a goad? What, what is that? And you can go to some outside source that says, oh, a goad's a stick with a little point on it that shepherds would use to prod their sheep along so they would keep moving. So go, then after the Bible explains itself, if it's something still a little hazy, then you can go to outside sources and commentaries. And then once you feel like you've got a grasp of it, try to summarize what the universal truth of that verse is in one sentence. Now, what do I mean when I say universal truth? What was true then that's true now and would be true for anyone else in the world? What is, what is the truth right there? That little, that's your golden nugget that you're mining for, that jewel. What is the universal truth of this passage? So cross-reference, let the Bible explain itself. Then go to outside sources. And then in one sentence, try to get down to that universal truth. Now, to do this, um, or I, I, sorry, I got off a little bit in <laughs> what I was going to do. But interpretation, here's an example. Some idioms might need to be interpreted. Like in Malachi or in the book of Lamentations. Uh, in, in Lamentations, Jeremiah will say, my soul is bowed down low. And if you just read that verse on its own, you're like, soul is bowed down. Well, maybe he's bowing down to God. It's a state of submission. But when you understand the idiom, it's, no, I'm depressed. I am sad. I am in a state where I feel like nothing good is going my way. I'm in a state of darkness. My soul is bowed low. Another one, long in the nostril. (laughs) That means that you're slow to anger. And so in Psalms, when it says, God is slow to anger, well, thank goodness the translator didn't say, God is long in the nostril. Um, Because that would just be confusing. And you might see this in the Old Testament a lot, when uh, so-and-so found grace in the eyes of, that just means to find favor. We don't really say, I found grace in the eyes of my neighbor when I, you know, what have you, told my dog to stop barking. Um, but that just means to find favor. So sometimes there's, there's little idioms, there's little phrases that you kind of have to work with a little bit as if you were a translator and say, okay, well, what does this mean? Uh, the way I want to do this is we're going to look at this verse. Around 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a big verse. So first, just real briefly, you don't, don't make 20 observations of the verse, but just say, okay, who's speaking when is this? What are they saying? Get, get a good grasp of your context, a simple grasp. And then I want you to cross-reference it with Psalm 22.1. That verse specifically, but someone at your table, read out loud the whole psalm. And then I want you to really, how does this help? How does this psalm help our understanding of what Jesus was saying? Because this is a tough verse. A lot of people have wondered, what on earth does this mean? Psalm 22.1. So first, you're going to have to look at, you're going to have to observe the text, then interpret it. All of Psalm 22 will be helpful. There'll be some chunks in particular that I'll let you notice that will just be like, whoa, okay, wow, this sounds like Jesus might have written this. But read the whole psalm. And how does this cross-reference really help you understand what Jesus was going through? 
And at Easter, this, this is, psalm is fantastic. So I'll give you about 10 minutes to do this. Then go through the interpretation where you're just trying to get that chunk, that nugget. What is the truth of what's being said? All right. How does, how does that psalm help us understand what Jesus, what Jesus was saying? Because that one little phrase that he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says that, he kind of brings up the whole psalm. Back then, psalms didn't have numbers. So if you said the first verse of the psalm, immediately people would think, oh, it's that song. And so this is what he's saying. So how did, what, what, did, what did you learn about what Jesus is going through? He's separated from God. He's in despair. Very good. Yeah, he's in the dark. He's, definitely he's not in a good place, for sure. So he's still dependent on God. He's not in a total state of um, lostness, so to speak. He's still, he's, he does affirm how he re- still relies on God. Is it conditional? Does he say, if you save me, then I will? No, no but even though I'm here, God, I'm going to proclaim your name. Yes? No, uh, well, certainly his hands and feet weren't pierced as a crucifixion. But that's a good question. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'd love to read back on that. But this, this can be seen as a messianic psalm, um, a partially prophetic psalm. David is, I mean, if you go back and if you observe the psalm, he's in a place where Saul is chasing him and there are armies coming after him. Um, and so he's... This, this psalm is true of David. He is saying this, but Jesus is called the seed of David, the son of David. He comes from David's line. And when Jesus says, hey, this is what's happening to me, Psalm 22, he's saying, what was true then of David, that's true of me right now. And did you read some of those verses in there that sounded like Jesus could have written this? Like, that is shocking. The first time I read that, I, I think I ran to somebody and was just like, hey, have you ever read Psalm 22? Like, this is outrageous. Um, I mean, uh, let me find it. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their head. He who trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in you. Think about that. If you're so powerful, just call down your angels. If you're really the Son of God, why doesn't He just take you off that cross? Or... Later on, uh, in verse 14 and following, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He was thirsty. He wanted something to drink. You, have lay, you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me, and they've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat at me. They divide my, my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's exactly what was happening to him. So you see a picture of exactly what he's going through, but at the end... Um, verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Talks about, he just goes on proclaiming, hey, I'm going to praise God, I'm going to worship him, and those who worship God, they will proclaim, proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it, God has done it. Just a quick cross-reference, and just that one little word that, or that one little phrase that a lot of times we're just like, I don't know what this means. This is confusing. I'm going to shut my Bible. This is confusing. I'm going to walk away and think about it. If you just do one cross-reference, it just kind of explodes. Did any of you come up with a one little nugget of, hey, what, what's the truth in this phrase? What's the timeless truth that Jesus is, is sharing there? Does anyone have an idea or did you all quite get that far? Destiny, yeah. Yeah, Jesus talking about 
who he is. So Jesus is confidence. His depend, Jesus was fully confident and dependent on God even in his darkest time, even in his darkest moment. Faith. faith. Yeah. There, there's immense faith in that God's going to accomplish what he said he would. And that even in the darkness and pain and in suffering, that God is still there. He has not left you. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, right. Mm-hmm. Man. The Son of God, who for all eternity had never been apart from the Father, felt that separation that we feel. Sometimes, or most the vast majority of people don't even know they have that separation from God and think they're all right. Okay, so we've observed. seen a little bit of how to interpret cross-referencing. What does it mean? What, what is this jewel that we're looking for, this, this gem in the verse? And then application, uh, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean for me? How do I use this? So what, so to speak? Well, so what? Um... And ask a couple questions of that. Is there a command here to obey? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Now for the verse in Mark, I would say there's an example to follow there. Is there doctrine taught? Is there something to know about God or know about man? Is there a challenge to face? So if, when you find, you observe it, okay, I know what it says, okay, I know what it means, and now I know how to use it. For example, this is an easy verse for application. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Well, there is a command to be followed there. That seems like a simple time, well, okay, it's a command. I've observed that it's talking about don't just listen to words, but be obedient. Um, what does it mean? Well, it, I think that it has a timeless truth, that it's not a contextual truth. Don't just listen to the words, just be obedient to what the Word says. And so, so what? Well, I'm going to be obedient to the Word says rather than just listening. That's about as easy as they get. What about this one? You've probably heard Philippians 4.13 a lot. I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. Or I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We're going to put it all together. I'm going to walk you through this verse, observation, interpretation, application, and then we're going to go through some verses where you as your table are going to go through the whole process. Okay, so observing it. Well, it's Philippians. So Paul wrote Philippians. He's writing it to a church there that he planted. We can read about that in Acts. So... He's kind of the pastor of this church, so to speak. He's at least this, the spiritual mentor. Their mentor. Um, I've experienced times of need and times of abundance. Okay, so Paul, there's been times in his, li- in his life when he's been rich. There's times when he's been poor. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of contentment. Okay, so whether he's been in need or been in abundance, he is able to be content. He's learned what it means to be content. So that means, well, if I'm satisfied or I'm hungry, okay, he can be content there. If I have plenty or if I have nothing, I can be content there. I'm able to do all things through the one who gives me strength. Okay, so he's saying that whether he has a lot or has a little, that because of who Christ is, uh, that Christ will give him enough strength to be content. All right, so what does that mean? What's the timeless truth there? That Jesus is our sufficiency, that whether or not we have a lot or have a little, 
that Christ is enough and through Him we can be content. Okay, that seems like a timeless truth that is true for all people in all time. And so, so what? So what does that mean? How do I use that? Well, is that a command? Is it a promise? Is it an example? Is it a doctrine? Well, it may be a couple of those. It's not a command. He's not saying be content. Is it a promise? It's not, well, I guess you could say that Christ will be enough. Um, is it an example? Well, yeah, Paul is an example because he said, I, I've been rich, I've been poor, and I've learned to be content. Is it a doctrine? Well, maybe, eh, I don't know if it's a doctrine. Is it a challenge? Contentment is a challenge. Yes. So how would I apply this? Be, whether I have a lot or I have a little, I must be content in what Christ has given me because He is enough and He has given me everything I need. I need, not everything I want. And for us, at least in America, I, and I, speaking for myself, there's a lot of things I want and the things I want often bring me stress and I get anxious because if only I had this, if only I had that job, if only I had this amount of money, that house, well, I don't, so I'm anxious, I have anxiety. But remember what we said last week, that Tim Keller quote, that a lot of times people will say, hey, just take a vacation, work harder, do more. But Christianity says, think about who God is, think about doctrine deeply, and that will bring you peace you're stressed because you are discontent with what you have, knowing who Christ is can bring you peace, that He is enough, that He has given you everything you need, and probably He's saving you from the things you want. If you got everything you wanted right now, right now, got everything you want, would that be better than where you are right now? <laughs> we have an honest woman in the house. Connie is an honest woman. I uh, Think about a silly example. When I was a kid, I wanted to live outside in my treehouse with my dog. I'm glad God didn't give that to me. When I was in college, I was infatuated with this girl. I knew, I knew that if I would marry her, then I would be happy. I am so thankful <laughs> that I did not marry her or was in a long-term relationship with this girl. I am so thankful of that. God, God saved me from what I wanted. But just using that verse as an example, see, you know, a lot of, a lot of people will use Philippians 4.13 to say, athletes will use this. I think I've heard, I heard Ray Lewis use this for, hey, I can win the Super Bowl. He did win the Super Bowl. And so uh, he misused a promise, and then it was validated in a little bit of a way. But um, people will use this to say that they can do the things that they want to do, that there's nothing that they can't do. When you really look at it and study it and see what it means, you observe it, you interpret it, and then apply it, that is not at all what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about being content in Christ alone. So, observe, interpret, apply is a simple method that can get us to the heart of Scripture that you can do on your own. If you li when you listen to sermons from now on, just ask, uh, how have they observed the text? How are they interpreting it? And how do they apply it? Almost every, I, I cannot think of a sermon that does not observe, interpret, and apply. That's, I mean, that's how preachers preach. If you ever get asked to teach, just, a, a, just walk people through, hey, this is what it says, this is what it means, and this is how we apply it. Now, you as your table, we're not going to have a lot of time to go through many of these verses, so uh, let's, let's do this one. I have three Chunks of scripture on here talking about conflict, which is conflict resolution and doing conflict well is something we hit on a lot at this church. Um, 
So I want you as your table to look first at Matthew 7.35. I want you to observe, interpret, and apply it. What does the text say? What does it mean? And how do we apply it? Because, I I mean, it's easy to come and listen to someone do it for you, but you're really going to get more if you work through it, and it's going to be hard at first, but over time it'll get easier and easier to do. If y'all want to join up tables to have more people to make it easier. Sorry, Michael. You got left alone. But hey, if you have to leave, it's no problem. No problem. No worries. I know people have a lot going on. So work through this. Taking the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's eye. Work through this a little bit. All right. We're going to move a little bit since we're running out of time. Was this a little bit easier? A bit of a struggle to get through it, observing it, interpreting and applying it in a short amount of time? What were some of your applications of the text? The so what? How does this matter? What about y'all back there? Did y'all get to application? What do, you, what do y'all have? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Anyone have something different? Right. Example and a command. Something to do. It's great for application. That's great. Yeah. The, the, the text is saying, hey, when you, oftentimes when we're going to someone else and we're pointing out their faults, we fail to see our own. So it's this idea of draw a circle around yourself and change everything in that circle before going to someone else in conflict. If you go to someone else in conflict, yeah. Right. Exactly. That's that's an excellent point. And I think that's a that's a good that's a great um, look at the motivation of our hearts behind this. That I would rather pay attention to what you're doing wrong than what I'm doing wrong. Exactly. I think that's a great job of going deeper into the text right there. But since we're running a little bit out of time, I had Three, ver- three passages all together to talk about conflict. That was the head, the heart, and the hands. And that passage is really the heart. How do you go to someone in conflict? And so if you want to study this over this week, or if you want to understand a little bit more about biblical conflict and what it looks like, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24, Matthew 7 that we just looked at, and then Matthew 18, where it's talking about, um, it's uh, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. It'll tell you, hey, what, how do we need to think about conflict? What do we need to know? What's the theology there? What is my heart in conflict? And then what should I do in conflict? How should I go about this? Um, so head, heart, and hands. And that's a, these three passages, observe, interpret, and apply these three. And you can say, oh, I've got a great idea of how I need to understand conflict, how I should enter conflict, and then what I should do. Um, so, whoa, I lost it there, but I'm going to put up just kind of a summary slide, just blinked off. But this is it, this is the big takeaway of the, of the week, how to study the word, you observe it, you interpret it, and you apply it. If you want something tangible to walk away with, this join the journey pamphlet, um, Join the Journey, if you're not familiar, is a daily Bible study that Watermark sends out. It'll show up in your inbox each morning. Regular members, regular Joes, just like the rest of us, write these. This isn't um, our pastor writing this. This is just an, a normal, everyday person puts their pants on one leg at a time like the rest of us. Um, and they have just observed the text. They've interpreted it, and they're trying to apply it. And then they have some discussion questions for you to work through. Um, but if you don't want to do that, that's fine. This pamphlet has a method on the inside. So if you don't want to have to pull up your computer and look at a PDF to remember what the method is, 
this, this will walk you through it really easily. And it's good to look at um, until it becomes second nature. And then on the back, it has a Bible study plan laid out for you. And this is 2013, so this is what we'll be doing this year if you sign up for it in your inbox. One year through the law, the first five books of the Bible, and then Hebrews, which really is the New Testament book that says, hey, how does the Old Testament really relate to the New? What did Jesus do? How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Um, How does that connect there? Uh, But you can do that on your own. I would encourage doing it in your inbox because it's very simple. It's very brief. We all look at email a whole lot, so you might as well do something while you're there. But thanks for coming. Um, I'll send a follow-up email, um, and I am I am available for any questions. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we can jet on out of here. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word, your inerrant, infallible, inspired word that you teach us how we should live and relate to one another and relate to you and know you. Thank you for coming down and giving your son for us so that we don't have to pay the penalty for our own sin. Thank you for redeeming us and showing us your grace. I pray that we would show uh, that same grace and forgiveness to those around us. Um, Thank you for allowing us to understand your word. I pray that we would take time with it and we would know it, would memorize it, hold it in our hearts and use it. It's in your name I pray. Amen.